Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. You all know him. You love him. My co-host, Andrew Decker. How you doing, buddy? Do they really love me? I don't know, man. We've gotten some good reviews, I think. They always say Andrew's a really great guy. Yeah. Yeah. I assume that's you. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So what's been going on? Well, uh, it's still COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, We're still basically in quarantine. Uh, So for the first time in a while, we actually have someone in the office, but we are we're not shaking hands. We're not uh, touching anyone. Um, uh, and, and who is that? Well, that would be William Biggs, yes. uh, the Honorable William Biggs. Uh, full disclosure, he actually is in my office in Fort Worth. Um, uh, we've known each other for, well, I guess since December of about 2019. Sorry, 2014, uh, when I actually clerked for him. And now I actually, you know, kind of work, work as, a, as a colleague, comrade. Down the hall. Right, down the hall. So this is not a partnership, right, William? Not a partnership. You're right. Right. <laughs> may, may I, I'd like to compliment both of y'all. Y'all both have podcast voice down. <laughs> right. I'm quite impressed. We've been doing this for a year. We, right. I, I, I like well, to think we've learned a, a thing. We, we also it's it, it's also good for a uh, for alluring uh, the females. Hello and welcome to Andrew and Andrew on yeah, Texas it, Criminal. Nobody's being allured <laughs> by that, my friend. <laughs> oh well, you know, my wife likes it. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right, we'll yeah. go with that. And she is, what was it? She is the most reasonable person. She is the most reasonable person. Yeah. We still haven't had her on. We'll have to talk right. about that. And I know you'll have at least one additional podcast listener after this, because I know my wife did say she was going to listen to Absolutely. This, so. Of Fantastic. course. Yeah. She should leave Sh- a rating. Shout out to Jess. Like us on Facebook. Yeah. Send us <laughs> to all your family and friends. All right. So, uh, William, we're going we're gonna to start off um, with simple questions. Uh, and you said this may be the hardest one we're going to ask you. What brought you to to wanting to do law? Well, and I don't know if this is an interesting answer or not, but it's an honest one. I've really wanted to be a, a lawyer as long as I can remember. Maybe it was the only thing I ever thought I could be any good at. I certainly wasn't an engineering mind. wasn't very good at science. All I could really do was read and write, and I probably wasn't good enough uh, writer to make a living at that. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I like to argue a lot. Um, uh, as my mom will tell you, I'm quite confrontational, or I was, and uh, still am. Still am. And uh, <laughs> so I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, probably high school, maybe. And specifically, I knew I wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer at least by college. Um, Is there anything that like that you know made you want to be made you want to be a, a criminal defense attorney? rather than just like this broad notion of, hey, I'm, someday I'm going to be a lawyer? Well, I knew I wanted to be in court. Yeah. I, wa- I like the excitement of, of the courtroom. Um, you know, there's a reason why all the shows are about are crime shows and crime law shows rather Absolutely. than uh, tax law or transact. Not to alienate some of your listeners, but <laughs> um, I always, yeah. of course, was interested in criminal law and, and, and just – you get to see the full span of human behavior and criminal, and, and and what people are capable of, and 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 just fighting the government. You know that yeah. there's an excitement I, there. I, I love fighting with the government. It is actually one of the best parts. And I wanted to point something out: the the tax lawyers love our podcast. Um, it is uh, it's on point with them. I don't know. No. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about them all you want. <laughs> I, I won't dog on any other areas of law. But, <laughs> you know. Um, when when you when you're growing up, you you see on TV all the crime shows, or you watch uh, these big sensational trials. You think of there's a lot 
of glitz and glamour to criminal law, and I found that it's not really like that, and, <laughs> and uh, but it's as reward, but it's as rewarding as I hoped it would be. It's just a little bit uh, grittier and maybe uh, can yep. be kind of a grind, just like any job. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, it's not it's not like Hollywood um, right. as Hollywood portrays it, but. I do think it, yeah, like you said, it, it has its benefits for sure. It, it fosters, a, there's a disconnect between what people think we do all day and what we really do all day. Yeah. And I think that's largely due to the big trials, OJ, um, right. yeah. LA, things that have no resemblance to my daily existence as a criminal defense. That's right. Lawyer. Right. Yeah. So, so our daily existence is more uh, read a case file, watch a video, watch a body cam video. Uh, see if there's any reason to get this case dismissed, and then you go to the client and go, so the offer of 15 years is actually pretty good. You guys aren't taking your limo down to the most to the country club for lunch? No? Not today. Well, no, not during not COVID. Oh. <laughs> uh, William, so you've, you, I think I first met you when I moved up to this area. You were handling, like, the um, appellate uh, uh Court of Appeals updates, case law updates for TCC, Tarrant County Criminal Defense Lawyers Association. Yes. Right. At one point in time, you provided those reports. Um, you actually started out in the, what, the Federal Public Defender's Office? Yes. So right out of law school, I went to the Federal Public Defender's Office. I started out in the appellate section. So I spent three years, three years writing appeals. Hope I'm going to be close enough to the mic here. You're good there. Um and that was good to do that first because it's a grind and research and writing is difficult and can be tedious and it'd be hard to imagine starting out doing trial work and then learning that later. Yeah. Learning that at the right when I was young and you know, had the energy to Yeah. You know, inhale that. <laughs> I'm willing to I'd say I'm thankful that I did that then because I have the skills to do that, and I probably wouldn't have bothered if I had not. And done you still like you you still actually do a lot of appeals. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, now that I've got it down, I mean, I don't have it down, but uh, now that I know how to do it, I'm certainly going to keep doing it. And uh, I do enjoy doing appeals. It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like going running. I dread going, but then I go, and I feel great afterwards. Yeah. You know, you, you become a much better lawyer doing appeals because you, you actually you learn the law and you learn. Trial lawyers and appellate lawyers both need each other, but if you can try to do both, it'll make you a better lawyer in all aspects. You know how to preserve issues, what needs to happen in order to um, litigate something on appeal, and you know the law, you know the cases, and, and you do the research. You, you, you do the, the things that we all should be doing that sometimes you don't do because you don't have occasion to do, but it helps you in other, in other cases. Hey, I know I read that case, and and so, and it is it is difficult to read a long record. I had a case last year that I had a 27 day trial. I got appointed by oh, the Fifth wow. Circuit to represent somebody on it, and it's actually a pending case. I won't talk about it, but it's a 16,000 page record. Now I didn't <laughs> I didn't know that when I I didn't know that when I signed up for it. It so, took me about. So, 60 hours to read the record on that. Oh my god. Maybe gosh. maybe more. And so you know, 
So what do you, so like when you have something like that, it's just, you know, how do you eat an elephant, right? Like just one bite at a time. Do you, do you have to schedule time around court? Like for this hour, I've got to get through, I got to sit down and read as much as I can in this time frame. How, how do you deal with that? Well, I mean, it's not easy because I mean, when, during the week, it's lots of going to court, run, running your traps, going to jail, calls, interruption, interruption, and you wind up doing a lot of your appellate work on the weekend, nights and weekends. Yep. So sometimes I'll just hold myself in my office, tell our legal assistant, hold on my calls, don't bother me, I'm just going to focus on this. And, and I, yeah, I mean, you have to set goals for yourself in terms of, I need to have this record, I've read this record by this day, and you're always asking for more time. That one I had to ask for a lot of more time. <laughs> yeah. And a lot, a lot more time. Um, and yeah, 16, usually 16,000. Yes. So it, do they, but will the court, I mean, like when you ask for more time, is the Court of Appeals usually pretty, um, per, you know, pretty amenable to that or? For a case like that. Yes. yes. Okay. I, I found that usually I can get extensions um, when I need them. And that case like that, it's, very obvious that hey yeah he's going to need time to read through all that um but man of course it's important to focus on what's important and triage and and not get bogged down in little uh fights between the parties that don't really lead to anything right a lot of times you'll you'll read an appeal and you'll have people arguing 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 you're reading page 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 and then oh well they came to an agreement okay well you know, that was a waste pointless. of time. Yeah, that was a waste of time. <laughs> so I, I usually kind of, I mean, I know not to get too bogged down in appeals, but I usually read through the record one time without taking any notes. I need to just get a holistic understanding of this case so I know, hey, big picture, what issues are going to be important. I don't take notes. I don't do anything. I just read it. And then I don't set it out. I don't tell myself I'm going to read it again, but I wind up reading it again. Uh, when I have an eye for what issues I want to write. Yeah. Be- because you have to basically write, when you are when you have an error, you have to explain why it's harmful. Right. And to explain why it's harmful, you have to explain how it affected the whole trial. So you're going to have to explain all the facts of the trial. You're going to really, in the end, you're going to have to know the whole trial anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah. And well, that, that, that seems like that's impossible a lot of to reading. digest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, for those of you who can't see our eyes, Andrew and I are both kind of glazed over going, dude, we don't what? ever want to do yeah. that. I, I'm the worst uh, podcast guest you've ever had. I'm I'm talking about uh, boring appeals stuff. No, well, you know, we haven't. No one's ever talked, talked about, about appeals. It so in some ways, it's exactly what we need to talk mm-hmm. about because, you know, preserving air, I, every, ta- every time I go to a CLE, what I learn is, because I'm not 100% effective at preserving air, I'm going to be found ineffective and I'm going to lose my license. Isn't that what you learn at CLEs? Yeah, I mean, that's the general gist. I think that's like the scare tactic they try to instill on you. I mean, like, well, it in makes practice, me pucker up, so yeah, I'd yeah. Say it's effective. Well, I mean, it can be, but I think in, in practice, like a, an ineffective assistance of counsel claim is pretty difficult. Sure. Um, I know that because at least I've, for I've, us two, we are, we are very good trial attorneys. Of course. Okay. Well, and, and I, I've. So I've never written appeals, but I have answered 1107 habeas, yeah. and I know that the that the burden is incredibly high uh, to be ineffective. And so, thankfully, I don't think anyone in this room would be found ineffective from the trial work I've seen. Right, and I, you know, I think the um, 
William, I think we probably need to have you come back for like just a specific episode on appeals um, and preserving error. In preserving error, yeah, that that would be that's educational good for one. everyone. We're gonna I'm gonna write that down actually. Okay, well, there's a pen right there and your papers right there. So write no, it down. I'll write it down later. All right, so, so let's get back to William. Best. Let's get back to William. All right, so um, I, I know this story, uh, but how did you get in the federal prosecutor's office? First thing out of law school. I, I know this public is just defender. Public, public what defender. What did I say? Yeah, you said federal prosecutor. Yeah, no, 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 you've never prosecuted a case. I know that, but but your your story of Tulane to the prosecute to the federal defender's office uh-huh. is so interesting. Tell us how that happened. All right, so August two thousand five, if you'll recall, Hurricane Katrina hit. Yep, I was a second year law student. At Tulane, or about to embark on my second year, and we were about a week in, and oh, we have to evacuate. Now, keep in mind, the year before we had to evacuate, and it was kind of a a non-issue. It never it didn't really materialize. So I'd been through this drill before. We didn't really know what was going to happen. We didn't know the levees were going to break, and we were going to be out of a school for the whole semester out of New Orleans. Katrina is to a hurricane in New Orleans what COVID-19 is to the flu in the United States. Okay. I, I remember Katrina. Were you, is that for my benefit? No, that's just for anyone who didn't okay. know. It's good legal reasoning, good analogy there. Thank you. <laughs> um, put that on the LSAT maybe. Um, so I get in my car. I have just a weekend full of clothes. That's it. And I leave. And I, and I remember this is maybe a little afield, but I do remember uh, the contraflow, which was basically where all the inbound lanes were going to be uh, going outbound. Uh, I, yeah. It took me three hours to get to the outside of the city just to get to the outskirts of New Orleans. So basically driving the wrong way on the, on the other side of the street. Right. And so that yeah. was officially supposed to start at 4. About 3.35 um, – or maybe even before, yeah, about about that time, there were several cars that just decided to cross over the median and just start going that way. And yeah. I joined them. Good for you. And, man, we made it quick. <laughs> we were just passing all these rows was of cars. Was there anybody coming the, other, the opposite no, direction? No, 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 no. They had shut it down long before. Oh, okay. So it was fine. It was fine. And I hope the statute of limitations is run. But anyway, no. <laughs> um, anyway, I was under duress. William's playing I shot the sheriff with his windows rolled down as he's rolling so drove ended up it's a long story I ended up visiting a friend and it was in med school up in Lubbock and uh, our city went underwater and I had to figure something out I wound up going to Dallas and went to SMU for the semester got an apartment they encouraged us and and Tulane it took a while for the schools to figure out what they were going to do and we had about Three weeks, three weeks in or so before we really knew what was going to happen. That, that hey, go f- go elsewhere for the semester. So the schools were encouraged. SMU encouraged us not to take a full load because we're already so behind. Of course, you guys know not much happens the first six weeks of law school anyway. So right. we probably could have managed. Uh, I only took ten hours, and frankly, I was getting a little bored. Had plenty of time, and I knew I wanted to do criminal defense. And I literally just started Googling federal public defender. And I discovered that the apartment I was living in was on essentially the same street as the federal public defender, just straight down the road. Oh, man. 
and uh, I call, speak to the, le the, sec the legal assistant there, and she puts me through to the federal public defender, this guy named Ira Kirkendall, and I told him the situation. You know, I'm looking to maybe do an internship, and he said, sure, come on. I mean, it was like that. was that. it, huh? Nice. And what's fascinating is, so I go, I go to work there. What's fascinating is I actually never met him. <laughs> he he, uh, he was in his last year or a couple last year or two there, and I remember his door was cracked, but I never went in there, never talked to him, never saw him. And uh, anyway, so I did That's an amazing. internship there, and it was amazing experience. Got to go, made some good relationships, got to work on some interesting stuff. Um, even managed to get some two hours of uh, externship credit through SMU doing that. And so I had kind of built a relationship there. Richard Anderson took over as the federal public defender. The next year, in the summer, you know, I'm studying for the bar, and I was interning at the at the DA's office in the fall, and a research and writing position came open. Uh, the research and writing attorney at the time, um, his name is Joel Page. He's now head of appeals, the federal public defender. He got promoted, so that position was open, and uh, I applied. And what do you know? I got the gig pretty, like, Fantastic. probably about a month before I passed the bar. I found out, hey, you wanted to come on with us, and there was no turning back. That's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, that's yeah. really great. Yeah, like I said, it's just such a fascinating story. The the yeah. whole, like, I got basically flooded out of my law school, ended up in Dallas, down the street. Just down the street from where I lived, and yeah. Right. Some Sometimes, you know. Things work out, right? Yeah. Lord works in mysterious ways kind of deal, right? Well, um, you know. This is a <laughs> probably a, a digression, but yeah, you know, I used to think you can kind of control your own destiny. You know, destiny is just a matter of choice, right? And uh, but then I've learned over time that some things in life are just beyond your control. Yeah, and uh, sometimes you just got to let the currents take you where they do because it works out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Seems no one, worked out. no one. It, well, it, it's like some cases the facts are better than fiction. Like you almost wouldn't believe it if I didn't actually know the guy who went, who, who got his start the way you did. So, um, so you still do a lot of federal work. I know you do a lot of state work. Uh, what's the biggest difference between a state case and a federal case minus just the obvious jurisdiction? Well, the flip, the flippant answer would be in federal, everybody goes to prison, but <laughs> It's not quite true. People do get probation in, in federal cases. But the biggest difference, of course, is the sentencing guidelines. The feds the, and, and the, the fact that the jury never decides the sentence, except on a death penalty case in federal. So you're always going to be getting sentenced before the judge. In, in state court, it's equivalent to like an open plea in state court. And that affects everything. It certainly affects plea negotiations. Because if you're getting an unreasonable offer from the state, you can always take it to a jury. Let a jury decide what the punishment should be. Yeah, right. In a state case. In a state case. Well, you don't have that luxury in federal. You don't get to just insist on a trial and, and a better outcome. Now, usually you're not so – I mean, this is – there are plenty of exceptions, but generally the with the federal case – you're not going to be agreeing to a specific sentence or a specific outcome. There are exceptions to that. You can do that. 
Yeah. Under a provision called 11C1C agreement, you can get a specific sentence which the judge has to approve. But generally, you're going to either plead guilty or you're going to go to trial. Maybe you get a, a, a plea to a charge with a lower statutory cap. Maybe you get it down to a misdemeanor every now and then. But ultimately, the judge, whether you go to trial or whether you plead guilty, you're going to be going in front of that same judge, and the judge is going to be calculating the sentencing guidelines. And the sentencing guidelines are – you can see directly from the sentencing chart the difference in outcomes if you go to trial versus pleading guilty. You know, maybe your guidelines are 70 to 87 months if you plead guilty – if you go to trial, you don't get those three levels off for acceptance of responsibility, and you might be looking at, which I have my sentencing table in front of me, but, uh, you know, like 121 to 151 months. It's like, okay, if you, okay, well, sure, we can go to trial, but this is the difference in outcome. The guidelines are just advisory. They're not mandatory, but they are important. And some yeah. judges are guideline judges where they very rarely will deviate from the guidelines. So um, the – Sentencing commission was started in the 80s. Back in the older days, there was just a wide range of outcomes. Hold on. I just want to be very clear. Just because it was in the 80s doesn't make it the older days. <laughs> As the oldest man in the room, I want to be very clear about that yeah, right now. Yeah. Continue. Sorry. Well, I could go on and on about the sentencing guidelines, but basically I'd say what happened – as a result of the sentencing guidelines is that a lot of cases that used to be probation cases wound up as prison cases. They used the data and, and statistics to decide what might be a fair and just sentence for a number of different offenses. And, uh, but one thing they didn't do is they didn't take into account that a third of the outcomes before the guidelines were probation. Well, you can't average in zero with all these numbers, so they were just taken out. Now, sometimes the guidelines will wind up at a zero to six month range, which is certainly probation range, but I'd say that it ratcheted up the penalty outcomes where a lot of people wind up going to prison on federal cases, even if it's their first criminal case. Yeah. You don't have deferred adjudication in, in federal court, so that's not an option, and, and you know... What I usually tell people is, look, if we're going to go to trial on a federal case, we need to bat a 1,000. We need to beat all the counts because if we don't, your guidelines are going to be the same, and the judge, if he, has the, if he or she has the penalty range available, you're going to get a worse outcome than if you plead guilty just because the guidelines are going to be higher, and you can see it numerically. Mm -hmm. um, you know of course, you don't know to a certainty what the guidelines will be. That's an issue that you have to litigate with probation. But that's the big – I mean, the sentencing guidelines is really the name of the game in federal criminal law, you know, and uh, what the guidelines are going to be, objections over enhancements, whether they're appropriate or not. And then, and then it's about arguing for a variance, arguing for a sentence below the guidelines, explaining why the judge who has the discretion to go deviate from the guidelines and explaining why that's important in a certain case. Um, but you don't end up with overall as wide of ranges, right? Because part of the risk in a state case is, you know, a, a burglary of a habitation. Well, it's going to be 2 to 20. 
Well, that's such a crazy wide range. When they offer you ten, well, I'm you know it's really yeah. Not would a, would a jury of, give me lower or more? Right. Right. Yeah. You know, and my understanding is, uh, in most of what I know about federal law, I've learned from listening to you and a couple of our colleagues uh, talk about cases at lunch, uh, that the guidelines are going to give you a much narrower window, right? So, so you have a better idea of what you're actually going to get if you're found guilty. That, I think, is some of the, one of the better things about practicing criminal law and uh, the federal experience and some of the worst things. One, it does aim to be try to be – there's a little more precision to it, and it's a little bit uh, easier to predict the outcome. It's just that sometimes the outcome you're predicting is a worse outcome than you would get in state court. You might wind up with probation in state court. You could be going to prison for five years, ten years in federal court. Um, on cases, a lot of federal cases could easily be state cases. You know, There's a substantial overlap in, in the types of cases that become federal versus state. So that is true, though um, I would say that Sometimes, especially in, on the drug case or cases where the guidelines are very high, just a few offense levels can really make things go way higher. You know, you might be looking at 15 to 20 years, and then one enhancement, one four-level enhancement might up it to 25 to 30 years because as, as you get higher on the sentencing chart, the ranges get bigger, and you make bigger jumps. And so it is kind of um, sometimes hard to explain to somebody, hey, we don't know what's going to happen. Your guidelines might be 10 to 12 years, or they could be 30 years, depending on how the judge calculates it. Wow. We don't know for sure. Oh, now, yeah. So that, that, that can happen. I think generally that doesn't, but that can happen. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of hard for a defendant to be like, I wish I, I, wish I knew exactly what was going to happen well wish we wish we knew we so we could tell the defendant this is exactly going to happen yes i yeah. mean i was just had a phone call today and i was like this is what i think is going to happen but there's no guarantee until it gets in front of a prosecutor and a judge and a possibly a jury so you know in like state cases if somebody's calling me about a misdemeanor it's it's likely going to be you know like a marijuana possession or or dwi or something like that is there like what I guess what is the most filed federal criminal case? Is there one? Well, I mean, they have those statistics out there, um, but I would my assumption, I think this is accurate, would be that it's drug trafficking. Drug trafficking? I think there's the most cases on on that. Um, so when somebody's numbers. Yeah, when the feds arrest somebody for that, are they allowed I mean, is there a bonding system um uh, in the federal penitentiary prior to your case being disposed of can you bond out there, there's no bond okay i mean there is bond in certain cases but i'd say in my generally speaking they don't require a cash bond you're either going to get out or you don't okay it's not like the, the state where you're essentially entitled to a bond right okay and if you can make it you're out so now, this is like some, yeah that that probably shows you just how little i know of the federal system you know i mean there and of course there are some no bond cases in the state but it's very right. small yeah. number of cases in federal court the judge can detain you or the judge could release you and you have a detention hearing and usually in front of a magistrate judge just a few days after uh, you're 
appointed or you get hired after the initial appearance, just a few days after the initial appearance, after the arrest, you're going to have a hearing. And assuming the feds do want to move to detain you, you're going to have a hearing on whether they're a risk of flight or a danger. And if they prevail on that motion and then they're detained, that's it. They're yeah. ordered detained. Sure, you can file a motion to reconsider, but it's going to be very hard to get a detention order overturned. Um, and so yeah. you, then you're just detained for the duration of the case yeah. until it's resolved. And how long could that be? I mean, it could be. Like if you're just going to plea something out, you've already, you're going to be negotiated. I guess just like walk us through that case. You're going to have your detention hearing. You're detained. You know, the next setting is. Sure. Stuff like that. I've, I've had federal cases last as little as five months and okay. I've had them last two years. All right. I mean, there's a, a wide range depending on all kinds of circumstances, some of which might be what city you're in, Dallas versus Fort Worth. Yeah. Um, it also may be just maybe your clients cooperating and they want to continue that cooperation and, uh, and, and give him an opportunity to maybe get some time off and you're continuing to work for the government in some capacity. You may continue stuff for a long time. Could happen. Yeah. So, um, as a defense attorney, are you writing, um, memos? I, I have this, I, thought I heard once um, that there's just a lot more motions practice or memo writing uh, that you're submitting to a court and the federal criminal law. Definitely true. Okay. Definitely true. Um, some of the big differences, you're not, of course, you're not going to just settings. Like in state court, you're running your traps. You're going setting to setting. Yeah. Talking to the prosecutor. Kind of got that pressure cooker feel um, where all these people are in this courtroom and we're all – you know, waiting in line to talk right. to the prosecutor. The beehive is what I call it. Yep. Yes. And, um, you know, sometimes you work it out and then sometimes you don't and it gets set for another day. Federal court, you're only going to court if you have something. I mean, you're, you're going to court for an arraignment hearing. You're going to court for a sentencing. You're going to court for a detention hearing. You're not, you're not just going to court to go to court. Yep. There's a trial schedule. If you need more time, you ask for a continuance. Otherwise, just expect that that's going to be the trial. And, if you and, and, the, and the prosecutor work it out, then you'll sign the papers independent of court and then file them, and then they'll set it for a, a guilty plea. Um, and so, yes, there is a lot more. So if you file a motion to suppress or any kind of issue you want to litigate pretrial, it's going to involve written briefing yeah, and um, some discussion of the, you know, the applicable case law and stuff like that. I think uh, in sentencing, when you're fighting over the guidelines, there's going to be a lot of brief writing on whether this enhancement should apply or not and why, the, what's the intent of the sentencing commission, what does the commentary say, what if some cases, uh, here's a case out of the Fifth Circuit that you know, has talked about this. And, yeah. Um, usually the government has quite a few cases they can cite in their favor. but Right. Um, I think that's true in every form, state, federal. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean – so, yes, there is a lot more written, more formal in that regard. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, of course, if you do a, me- a sentencing memorandum or a motion for downward variance, which basically is basically asking the judge to go below the sentencing guidelines based on factors independent of the guidelines or maybe because you think the guidelines are, are poorly written or have uh, they lack some 
um, empirical basis. I can get into that more if you want me to, but I maybe uh, don't want to get too bogged down. You may be citing some cases or some statistics for why you know, these guidelines are too high for this yeah. given case, and it's usually going to be in writing. There's going to be a lot of stuff done in writing before the sentencing hearing. You're usually not going to have an overly long hearing uh, with a lot of testimony and evidence. You're usually fighting about things in the pre-sentence report. Yeah. One thing people don't realize, I mean, I say this not lawyers don't realize, I say it more citizens don't realize, you plead guilty – to any offense, you're giving up a lot of rights. And among those rights you're giving up are rights to proof beyond a reasonable doubt of other conduct, which will go into your pre-sentence report. They just have to find by preponderance of the evidence it's true. Giving up your right to confrontation, all kinds of hearsay. Those pre-sentence reports are full of just summaries of police reports and agents' reports. Who gets to write the history? The vic the victors. And in this case, <laughs> yeah. your client is not a victor. Right. So the agents are telling the um, probation officers and through their reports or through their conversations, hey, this is what happened, and this is what this confidential informant's saying. And and you're going to say, well, hey, that's not reliable. That's, that's just an anonymous confidential informant. And here's some cases explaining why that's not reliable. The court shouldn't consider that, so we shouldn't attribute this amount of drugs to him it should just be this amount and that'll affect the base offense level here so it's much more of a uh, written yeah argument almost a, almost bureaucratic in some ways so right right so so obviously very different systems very different yes right so do you have a preference well like just in the way they function It's very hard for me to decide if I have a preference. I mean, there are certain aspects that I like about the federal system, again, because you are actually litigating legal issues, and, and you can really – the sky's the, the best and worst part about federal sentencing is the sky's the limit on things you can argue. I mean, you can argue any fact about someone is a relevant fact that the court can consider if they chose to. I do find it frustrating that there's not a mechanism to do some kind of – uh, deferred adjudication, some yeah. some ability to get something dismissed. I think that's an unfortunate aspect of the federal system that the state system has. I also think that having out there that a jury could decide this issue in terms of punishment, of what this is worth, the fact that we can opt for that in the state helps drive better outcomes in, in the state. Um, now, it could also drive worse outcomes on <laughs> right. and, and, and certain cases. Certain cases you know a jury's never going to want. The prosecutor knows that, and they can lean pretty hard on you. Mm -hmm. um, and in that circumstance, yeah, there's some good predictive ability to the to federal system. But I can't say that I prefer one or the other, though, I mean, I'm probably, since I started in the federal system, that's definitely the system that... I think about first fundamentally, yeah. but there's aspects of the state I like. I, I really like the fact that you can uh, find outcomes that don't involve a conviction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. At the, at the end of the day, that they can go, I was never convicted, mm -hmm. even though they went through a pretrial diversion or a deferred adjudication, um, something like that. And and, yeah. and you know the other issue to what you were talking about earlier is 
the guidelines do help drive some level of uniformity um, in terms of outcomes. So it's not such a vastly unpredictive where the range of outcomes in the state may turn on which prosecutor you get on which day. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, that's that aspect is, is good in the federal system. But if it's almost like that if you could take each good aspects from each of them and you could make the super criminal justice system. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't like the way that sounds. Yeah. I think my guy's going away for a super long time yeah, in a super, super criminal system. justice system. Um, uh, but it, it, it's, it, it's fascinating the differences um, uh, between the federal and the state and, and you know, just how – how 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 they work what the difference is um and and so you know i feel like i've i've learned a ton just in I, the I last just think too yeah 30 minutes right and i i've been in some state state uh courts and i know you guys have too where it's just like it's just so relaxed and informal and it almost like doesn't even respect that somebody's liberty is at stake you know I, I like the informality sometimes and then, but listening to you, like just how formal it is, like they're just taking very seriously, like they're, they're removing somebody's Liberty. Um, I don't know. I, maybe our state courts should be more formal in that respect. Uh, some, some courts I just feel like can be very, I think you said flippant earlier, like very flippant with, uh, with some of our criminal defendants. You know. Well, I, I I especially think that some of our prosecutors become flippant with our clients. Oh yeah, but that may be true. Do you feel like that's true in federal court as well, or do you think because there's this distance in formality that some of that gets? I absolutely put, think that put the, down. I I do I do I do agree with that. I think that the the fact that the sentencing guidelines are driving outcomes that we're arguing about whether an enhancement should apply or not based on what the guideline says, based on cases, the fact that the judge is imposing the sentence, I do think some of that element that you're talking about is removed from the process, and it's less about the individual. No, it's not always true because, I mean, they have charges at their disposal with mandatory minimums that they can insist on. But, yeah, I, I don't think that there's as much animus, if that's what you're – kind of driving yeah. that towards an individual and it shouldn't ever be the case but so i know reality sometimes it is right yeah i don't find that to be quite as big an issue on the federal side that's interesting that's true all right so so we, we we've we've kept you talking for a while now um and so uh we let you know that we always ask a few fun questions of all of our guests uh so let's start with a simple one favorite musical artist or band well, I must say, nowadays, I listen to probably music that people would find quite strange. I listen to <laughs> electronic music, because that helps me when I write appeals and, and work. And I I basically want long, deep tracks with no lyrics, and it helps yeah. me kind of zone out. And I've almost gotten to where I... I used to like kind of fast, like trance, mm, mm, mm. but now I'm more into almost ambient music. So you know, almost almost white noise kind of kind right? of like something you would hear in a like a movie soundtrack or something just very spare you know and uh that's what I mainly listen to now 
you know because um, you're working all the time or is that just like help you zone it out just helps relax. me relax it helps yeah. me zone out like good I, I don't listen to a lot of artists anymore like rock bands or anything like that i mean historically you know i used to be really into radiohead i love radiohead yeah and, and I, I had all these bands that i w- was into that now i don't i don't I barely listen to anymore. And I hear everyone. I mean, I feel, uh, it might be an age thing too. I feel like everyone they have their sweet spot of years where they love their bands and it, they just continue to love those bands and never acquire new ones. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That does and, happen. And so I feel like. Um, yeah, I'm, st- I'm still living in 1986 uh, when it comes to music. Right. Just in the year of 1986. Yeah. 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 Back when you had an earring and long hair. No, that was that was a little later than that. Oh, okay. Like I don't even know I don't even know who some good current bands are that I would be into. So I don't it, hel- it helps to have a twenty two year old living at home. You know, you sure. end up you end up knowing all the current artists. We don't yeah. we won't we'll talk about that. Yeah, now. you're you're rocking out Juice World, I think, right now, aren't you? Yeah, man. Sure. I just do you even know? No idea. Okay. So book. Is. Favorite book I know you're a reader. Uh favorite book. Or an author that you're like, dude, I read everything that he or she puts out? Well, um, I used to love Joseph Heller and Kurt mm-hmm. Vonnegut. Yes. They are so funny. Um, in fact, it was funny you asked that question because I was just listening to a podcast on – that's just what a dork I am. I listen to podcasts on books. <laughs> and uh, they did one on this book called Something Happened, which is uh, – kind of a stream of consciousness by someone who's a middle management and insurance company uh, in the in the 70s and he's basically just going basically uh, complaining or observing his world and how drab and miserable it is and it's wouldn't it's that be like writing a book on tax law <laughs> <laughs> zing tax lawyers it's it's like um it's dark humor without the humor. It's so dark. <laughs> <laughs> and that book is an amazing book, even though it's quite ponderous. Uh, but that's one of my favorite books. And the reason I'm, I i don't have a favorite singular book, but that book's coming to mind because I just listened to a podcast on it. And I, yeah. I did love that book. So what was the title of that book? It's called Something Happened. Something Happened. Something wrote, Happened to Him author? at Some Point in Life. What? Auth- the, who's the author? Joseph Heller. Jo- okay. Who wrote Catch-22. Catch-22, yeah. And uh, Catch Twenty Two is hilarious. It's an Amazon Prime show right now too. It's in my queue. So. Oh yeah. Okay. I've heard. I've heard that. I don't know if it's gotten good reviews. That's my favorite book. Catch I don't review. know if it's. I don't know if it has good reviews either. I know nothing about the show. I just. See if the you title. love that book, you yeah. should read Something Happened. But it's a. It's a slog. It's five hundred seventy-five pages, and it's essentially a stream of consciousness. That's awesome. But okay. I'll it's put it on very the list. good. I, I do. I do like it. I recommend it. Okay. So, piece of advice. What is a piece of advice you've been given professionally or personally that you're like, this really is good advice? Well, it's kind of what I was saying earlier, um, that some things in life you just can't control, you know, and and you've got to operate within the parameters. You got to deal with the hand you're dealt. And sometimes it's just not in the cards. You know, you're not going to win this motion. Even if you have the law on your side, you know, you just know that it's not going to wind up or it, maybe you know that the cop's not telling the truth, and but the judge is going to rule in their favor. 
you've got to find some way to help deliver a good outcome without, you know, knowing that you're not going to get the justice maybe you're entitled to, but you're going to need to leverage that in some other way. You know what I mean? If that does that does that makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. You gotta you gotta be focused on what sandbox you're in. You gotta know where you are, even if you might be right in the abstract sense. If it's not gonna ultimately lead to you prevailing or getting the best outcome, well, then you need to figure out a way to steer it in a way that's productive. Right. It may not be just this. No one's gonna say, "Oh, you're the winner. You you have the purest, most beautiful legal argument. You're the winner." <laughs> yeah. You may not uh, get. You need to think about what would what are people going to say about this, right? And a lot of times I say this about appeals. I know I'm kind of deviating, but you're fine. You have an issue, and you argue legislative intent. Well, the reality is, a lot of times the legislature hasn't thought about this issue. Whatever issue you're talking about, legislature never thought of this scenario, and the statutes doesn't. Who knows whether it's intended to cover it. No one ever thought about it. But if they had thought about it, they would have wanted your client to lose. <laughs> <laughs> That's a subtext to many appeals, I think. I, I like now, that. how that answered your initial question, I don't know. <laughs> I love it, man. I, what I what I took away from that is like best piece of advice is like look just just be okay in the sandbox that you find yourself in. Exactly. You know, make make the best with with what you got in the hand you're dealt and whatnot. Yeah, I dig yeah, it. There's usually something you can do with it. You right. Know? It's just even if it's just you know scoop the cat poop out of the sandbox. I didn't get that from from Williams' <laughs> <laughs> advice, but okay, you did. I, I went to a dark place. I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> All right, all right. I think everyone's in a dark place after listening to me talk about something happened and appeals and. No, man. This is uh, this is actually like like Andrew said. I've I've learned a lot uh, just in the short time we've been talking about uh, federal law, right? Uh, federal criminal law, anyways. So you uh, want to ask him how people would find William? If yeah. They, if they want to hire him for a federal case or an appeal, or I would love to, Andrew. William, where can our listeners uh, contact you? Where can they? Learn more about you. Well, um, they can go to williambigslaw.com with all my info. Fantastic. Um, that's my website. And, I mean, do you actually leave contact info? Like no, we'll do the website, number? and they can contact you through your website. Your office number is there, and maybe it's all, like it's email all there. and all, all that. All my details are there. Right. We'll put that uh, that website on the show notes. So if you're interested, just click on the show notes, and uh, you'll see a link to William's website, williambigslaw.com. Is that right? That's right. Cool. Even I my will. cell phone's on there. Like, if some listener Googled me now, my cell phone will be there, and my phone will be ringing in seconds. It's true. So it's I'm true. easy to find. Yeah. You're not hiding. I'm not hiding. He has nothing to hide. I have nothing to hide. All right. That you know of. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, William, thanks for being on the show. It is. It has been an honor, and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I, I really have learned a lot of stuff about some of the differences in federal and uh, state cases, and I think we will have to have him on to talk about, you know, like preserving error and appeals. For sure. um, but uh, this brings us to the end of, of another episode of Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. How would they find us, uh, Andrew? Well, we have a website. It's 
dot. I don't know if that that's probably like just irrelevant to even state that these days, huh? Yeah. Guys, y'all go to texascrimdefense.com. There you can find all of our episodes listed. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts uh, you know, are published. I have no idea. Um, like us on Facebook. Andrew created a Facebook page for us. Correct. Yeah, so like us there. Leave us a rating and review. Share it with your friends. We really appreciate your support. WilliamBigsLaw.com is where you can contact William if you have any uh, issues or need any kind of appellate work or federal criminal work or uh, state criminal work. Does it all. He does it all. Um, probably the smartest guy that I know. Yeah, uh, I, I actually tell people when they when we talk about our office, I'm like, so William is the smartest guy in the office. I, yeah. And I mean that very honestly, and I'm saying that with him in the room, so that's got to be true. Yeah. The fact that y'all think that shows how dumb both of y'all are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, just listen to our podcast, man. I mean, <laughs> that's right. That's right. all right. Well, folks, thanks for listening. We've we've run a little long, and we will uh, catch you on the next time. Thank y'all on for the having next me. time. All right. Uh, yeah. Immortal words of Andrew Decker. <laughs> <laughs>